Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Happy Monday, everybody. It's Don Abernathy. And before we get on with the show, I just want to give you guys a little heads up. Um, coming up this weekend, our friends from uh, Walking Point, RJ Nevins, is in town. And I have been invited out to his autograph signing up in Orlando. And I'll be up there on Sunday. And uh, we're going to interview him and his wife, Chelsea, to find out how the uh, premiere of the Walking Point movie went, how uh, distribution's working, and how we all can see it in the future, as well as talking about um, everything as far as what's been going on with them for the last year and a half. Now, as we know, this weekend was the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, and I sat around and I tried to think, okay, maybe I'll produce something cool, I'll uh, go over the facts, go over the information, and rehash everything that's Pearl Harbor, but I got to thinking... If you're a listener of this podcast, you already know about Pearl Harbor. You know what happened. You know um, the statistics, the loss of life. And there's really not much that I could uh, bring to you with my knowledge and uh, of what I know about Pearl Harbor that's really going to learn you anything about what happened on that day. And so what I thought I would do is I'd go back in the archives, go back to episode 22. We had a dual interview episode on episode 22 with Sam Dittman and... Um, Mike Santana, and Sam was talking about her recent visit to Pearl Harbor and to the Arizona um, Memorial and what was going on with it, and so I decided to just go ahead and cut Mike out there, not because uh, he didn't deserve to be there, but because this is just a short, abbreviated episode about uh, Pearl Harbor and what's going on with it nowadays, and uh, when you go down to Hawaii, what you can expect, uh, just a little memorial, if you will, for uh, Pearl Harbor weekend. And uh, next episode, we were going to have R.J. Nevins back, and um, I'm lining up a few more episodes. I know it's been a few weeks since I brought you anything, so I just want to give you this nice abbreviated revisit to half of episode 22 from about a year and a half ago. And um, thank you guys so much for your continued support, and we'll bring you the show here momentarily, and you'll hear all the stuff at the beginning. But um, as you guys know, At Computers brought you guys this show and brings you all the podcasts here on the Digital 410 Network. And so please check us out, go to Digital 410's website, d-410.com, or go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Amazon link for the holiday season. If you could do me a huge favor and put that in your toolbar, perhaps on your desktop, and whenever you shop for Amazon for this holiday season, if you click on that link, it won't cost you anything extra, but they'll send me a few coins. And once those coins add up, they'll allow me to uh, withdraw it and help us to provide you guys with more content, buy equipment, and uh, pay for our travels. And while you're there, you can also get your T-shirts and all that good stuff. And if you haven't done so, please uh, sign up for our Patreon account. We do have a paywall podcast that I put up there called What's in Your Head. Uh, We got one episode up there. There's some exclusive video content we put up there. It's also a nice shortcut for our YouTube. All the content I put up on YouTube, I post on the Patreon page. We don't ask for much money. The first tier is a dollar a month. Sign up for tier one. We'll be grateful. Give us that dollar a month. It, It goes a long way. If you want to contribute a little more, sign up for the $3.50 plan. Or if you want a free t-shirt after two months and you really love the podcast and you really want to contribute, sign up for the $7 a month plan. And um, we we greatly appreciate it. So head on over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. Click on that Patreon link. Please sign up. That will help us out greatly. And if you haven't, please go over to our YouTube channel, the Digital 410 channel. We do have the uh, review up of the M1 Carbeam 
air rifle that was put out by Springfield Armory a few months back. And we did finally put up the trip to Texas to the National Museum of the Pacific War. I finally got that video edited and uploaded, and you can find that on YouTube as we speak. And you can also find that at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. And we'll bring you a nice full-length episode next weekend. But for right now, here's an abbreviated edition of episode 22 about Pearl Harbor. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. First and foremost, let me thank everyone for their continued support of my little show. I see our download numbers are growing each week around the world. Yes, that's right. Around the world, we are getting people listening to our show each and every Sunday and throughout the week. So I love seeing those numbers grow. If you have any friends who have any interest whatsoever in World War II or even living history, please share our little show with them. Let's get those numbers growing. It means so much to me. And I want to thank those of you who have decided to help support the show by purchasing the What's the Scuttlebutt t-shirt on our website. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, women's shirts. And I say support the show, um, not support the show financially, because to be honest with you, I make maybe 50 cents off of those shirts per shirt. So there's no financial gain in any of this. What I mean by support is by spreading the word, by advertising for me. All the advertising we do is through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and not to mention the five-star ratings and the great reviews that you give us on iTunes. The better the review, the higher the rating, the more likely iTunes will share us with other podcast listeners. So thank you so much for all the support. Thank you so much for the continued downloads. And on with the show. And returning to the show once again, a good friend of mine and a fellow reenactor, Sam Dittman. Sam, how are you doing this weekend? Good. How have you been? I've been doing very well. I hear you uh, have some exciting things going on this weekend. What are you doing? I'm at a barrel race. Nice. So I'm, do- I'm doing more horse stuff. Are you performing at all or are you just tending to horses? No, I'm just I'm just watching today. No, not riding. Well, the last time we had you on, um, we covered a lot of things, but one of the things we didn't cover... You had the opportunity to go down to Pearl Harbor and visit some of the uh, memorials and and the uh, museums, and I thought, what a perfect time to bring you on, considering the Pearl Harbor Memorial of the USS Arizona is recently in the news. Unfortunately, the USS Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor has been closed indefinitely, which I don't like the term indefinitely, because I'm sure they will reopen it after the repairs, but they're... Yeah. They're claiming indefinitely, and apparently what has happened um, during their regular maintenance, because obviously anytime you have a, um, a location where the general public spends time, especially a location like this monument that is based over water, you always have to do um, service, maintenance, and inspections. And what they have discovered is that there's a huge crack right where the off-ramp meets the platform that makes up the memorial. Yeah, that's what I heard. So, in your last visit, did you have the opportunity to go out to that memorial? Yes, we did. We, the four of us, that I don't think anybody... Ted, Ted Johnson was on your show. He yes, came, ma'am. He also, came, he also came with us on the trip to Hawaii. We all went out there for the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. And we went the day before Pearl Harbor because they had so much stuff going on for... The anniversary we wanted to make sure we could get in and out when it was still relatively quiet 
So we went about at 8, 8.30 in the morning because we wanted to have be there close to the time that the attack happened so we could see the harbor and what it would have looked like on that day 75 years ago, 76 years ago now. And it's a national park, so you go up to the park building and you get your little voucher because the waters are still within Pearl Harbor Navy Base. So you become a guest of the United States Navy as you get onto the ferry for the Arizona. So you get onto this ferry and you ride out to the Arizona Memorial Monument. So where the crack is, is right where you get on and off the ferry. So just because the amount of people going to see this monument, that's my guess of why it's finally starting to fail. Sure. Well, and not to mention that um, I'm, I'm assuming, once again, I've never been there, but I'm assuming the ramp is much like any other boat dock that rises and lowers with the tide, whereas the monument itself is more stationary. And so not only do you have all that foot traffic, but you have the constant rising and lowering of this ramp um, multiplied by the weathering of the concrete. And uh, concrete does go brittle, and you know, and cracks aren't you know, that uh, rare when it comes to concrete. I mean, anybody has a driveway or sidewalk or, you know, a um, concrete slab for a lanine or pool deck for that matter knows that cracks do happen. Yeah, it's actually, it's a concrete pier. It's not like um, a floating dock. So it's a concrete pier and it's sat on, like it's it's resting on top of piers. As I mean, it's obviously difficult to tell as you're on the ferry boat going to it because they really only want you to spend like a short amount of time there because they have so many people coming every day so once you get on the dock they kind of usher you to the actual monument itself where they have displays and plaques and writings honoring those who died and then you walk through and you see a scale model of the arizona and how it's resting on the bottom right now and then you can walk through to where you can look down and see the Arizona and there's also a pool like a, a viewing pool where you can go down and you can see the oil still bubbling up yeah. and then on the far end it has a wall with all the names of those who died on Pearl Harbor Day but also all of those who have been in turn interned into the ship since then because they still for anyone who served on the Arizona that wants to be buried with their comrades they will still do that and I'm sure just going to that memorial and being there and being in that environment, especially someone like you who is more than aware of the history of what happened there, I'm sure it's very somber just to be in that environment in itself. It's very somber and it's very powerful being there. I can explain how it is all night, but you have to go there. Like I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it because it's not just what you see and what you feel being in that place, it's what you smell because you can smell the oil in the water. It's just, it's, it takes over all of your senses, just being there where this actually happened. It, it feels like, like you're there 75 years ago. It's, it's hard. It's so hard to explain. You have to go there whenever it opens again. Well, I'm just reading the story while you're speaking, and I wonder if maybe this crack is a residual, because apparently back in May of 2015, uh, the first incident that caused a temporary closure to the monument was when the Navy ship uh, Mercy struck the memorial's dock and damaged it then. So I wonder if maybe there was some um, early structural damage caused by when the dock was hit. 
that definitely because even though like you go in a little ferry boat it's it's a decent sized boat like it has a decent tonnage even though it's a little little ferry boat you just go from the land over to the monument and back it's still a it's still a ship it's still a navy vessel so it's a significant hit to the monument which wasn't meant to take that kind of damage yeah, it looks like it was built in 1962 and welcomes uh, uh, roughly over 1.8 million visitors each year. Now, clearly, yeah. a majority of those visitors are going to, at least the American visitors, are probably going to take place in the summertime. I would also assume maybe around spring break and, you know, the, the holidays when most people are off of work and school. And so when you have that much traffic going through there, clearly, you know, they probably what, want you in and out of there within 20 to 30 minutes, I would assume, maybe less. Yeah, usually you spend about 15, 20 minutes just because there's more people coming in and they don't want you to stay there all day. They want you to stay long enough to experience it, but not you can't really just hang around all day. Now, I know some of the hospitals and some of the buildings are still standing and did not have any exterior repairs to them, meaning that if you have access to see them, some of the uh, damage can still be seen on those buildings. Actually, Hawaii has statutes to protect historical buildings so when as if you get the opportunity to drive around pearl and hickam we had the great fortune of having chris tenero and bk tenero to come with us and chris is still active military so we got to go on a staff ride around the bases so we were able to see all of the buildings and the hangars and everything that still has bullet holes and chunks missing out of the walls and so they try to keep everything as original as possible so that people will come here and remember the history that this actually happened, that we were attacked and this happened. Now, when you guys are riding around the airbase with your access, your VIP access, if you will, because of Chris's military service and still being active, was the facility larger than you imagined or was it actually smaller compared to other facilities that you've been on? As far as the footprint of where most of the attack happened, was it more spread out or was it isolated to a certain area or was it just everywhere? It's a lot larger than you would think because they attacked the entire island. I mean, obviously Pearl was their main goal because that is where they expected our entire fleet to be. And they wanted to take out our fleet so that way we couldn't initially go back and respond to this attack. But there were loads of airfields. That's one thing we did when we were on the island is we went to all of these different airfields. If you watch Tora Tora Tora, you'll see that the P-40 is taking off of this this airfield in the woods and people taking off on airfields on the beach. So there was military installations all over the island. So the even though the main Japanese attack was to Pearl, they're actually the first engaged in combat with the Marines at Kaneohe Bay because they were out flying recon train like tra yeah the recon or training they were just out flying around not expecting anything to happen because we're at peace we're not at war with anybody a lot of people who aren't up to date on their war history one of the reasons this caught us off guard is they had uh, members of the uh, japanese embassy or japanese envoy they were currently providing the ruse of working on a peace treaty to prevent any further actions happening so they basically had set up this whole ruse during their planning that, hey, we're going to go kind of go off and talk about perhaps getting into a peace treaty, all the while knowing that, A, they're going to bomb Pearl Harbor, B, they're going to attack the Philippines. And so they had this whole plan disguised underneath the delusion of a potential peace treaty. Exactly. This plan of attacking Pearl and everything 
what took years of planning and training and it what took at least a month to put into action with having the ships and the aircraft and the locations they need to be all the while while sending these ambassadors to talk peace with us that is why we were so like some people during and after the war hated the japanese and and that is why because we were at peace with you we were we were negotiating on on non-aggression and peace treaties and you attacked us unprovoked while we thought that we were working on becoming friends well and for the casual listener who's listening who's scratching their head saying well wait a minute if we're not technically at war with them why would we be in a talks about peace well the reason being and the reason why they attacked us is we basically froze all their onshore accounts we basically put an embargo on all the oil that we were exporting to japan all the steel all the goods and so basically all the allies decided well the best way to slow down their war effort, and by the way, why should we provide material goods to our enemies, is to stop selling it to them, stop shipping it to them. Not only did we cut off what oil we had coming out of our states, more importantly, the steel and other, you know, technology, and people don't realize this, but at the time in New York City, we had a huge area where we actually produced clothing here. We had huge areas. And so we basically, any, any export we had coming out of our countries, along with our other allies, Australia, Great Britain, you know, anybody who was on our side, we basically said, okay, no more. We're not sending anything to anybody. And so Japan's like, okay, well, we got to try to do something because we're not going to have the materials, the oil, the gas that we're going to need to continue to achieve our objectives in this war. And that's part of the reason or the main reason why they did what they did. Exactly. So while you were there... Um, I, I think I vaguely remember a, a photo or, or a story where there was an area that used to have one of these auxiliary air bases that is now basically abandoned. It's a field. I think it's even a private farm property. But there was one freestanding building, and you kind of had to use your um, your personality and your knowledge of horses to kind of get your, your get you guys onto that location. Yes, we did. So we were looking for Iwa Field which was, I believe it was a marine airfield during the war. It's now, I mean, it's owned by the Department of the Navy still, but I think they had um, marine station there during the war. So we're driving around trying to find this, and we know there's revetments there, and for those who don't know, revetments are these giant concrete structures, basically, to protect the aircraft from damage if anybody attacked but even from recon so if someone flew over they can't see how many aircraft there are because they're inside so we're driving around trying to find this airfield and i look up because i'm looking at pictures of the revetments and trying to explain to the guys in the car what they are and i look up and i'm like that's it and we pulled up to a horse stable so the department of the navy had converted these revetments into stables for horses for people who lived on base so that way if they had horses they had a place to keep them nearby so we were trying to find a phone number of someone so we could get in so we could see them because they're all original all the lighting is still original inside they just added pens and put the horses there and so this woman walked up and we started talking horses and because i had gone on the lipizzans she wanted to hear more about my experience on the lipizzans and she let us in, let us look at everything. See, there was actually a couple structures still there that were original from when the aircraft were there. I think there was a maintenance building and some kind of office. 
I mean, everything is now turned into horse stuff and not sure. aircraft stuff. But it was really, it was incredible because there's no way we would have been able to see that stuff if there wasn't horse people there. Yeah, and, and when it comes to a lot of that stuff, I mean, a lot of the historical preservation stuff didn't happen until later on, you know, 50s, 60s. Yeah. And so, yes, they knew the importance of Pearl and the sinking of the ships in that area, but if they were to make a monument out of every single structure and provide civilian access, they would be sacrificing a lot of land. And so clearly They'd be sacrificing the whole island. Yeah, because and so clearly Japanese aircraft crashed everywhere on that island. Yeah, and so clearly, you know, you gotta minimize you gotta pick and choose. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you know, it's like okay, well this better serves as the horse stable. I mean, how many people want to come look at an empty building? And exactly. So, Us four. That was yeah. it. <laughs> what other locations did you guys um visit while you were there? Let's see. Obviously, we toured Pearl and Hickam. And for those who don't know, Hickam Field is the air base that is right next to Pearl Harbor. So Pearl Harbor is the Navy base and Hickam is the Air Force base, which would have been an Army base during the war. And we also went up to Schofield Barracks, which is also, you see that in the Tora 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 film, where they climbed up on, I don't know if, I don't remember if they did it in the movie, but they climbed up on top of the barracks and were shooting at Japanese aircraft with their 1903s and their 1911s, just whatever they could find. Whatever yeah, they I think had, Tom were... Sizemore on the, the love story Pearl Harbor from the late 90s, I think Tom Sizemore climbed up there with his M1A1 Thompson submachine gun and was shooting at him. Yeah, yeah, we went there, and that's also there was a polo field there, and that's where Patton played polo when he was on the island for another horsey fact. Yep. We went to um, Haliwea, where the two P-40 pilots drove from Schofield Barracks down to the airfield to take off, to get into the air to try and fight these the Japanese ship-to-ship. And that's actually on the North Shore, so we were able to do some touristy North Shore stuff while we were there, too. Where else did we go? We did so much. Every day was full of stuff. Let me ask you this. Have they made any sort of monuments or is there any museums dedicated to the nursing staff and the doctors who put forth so much effort to save as many lives as they could during that day? I believe so, but in our one week there, you cannot see everything. So we just tried to pick and choose cause, because tor- touring Pearl took a whole day. Touring Hickam took a whole day because there's monuments everywhere there's the utah there's the oklahoma there's the missouri there's the arizona so we're trying we're trying to hit everything that we can and then we would just stumble upon things like ewa field where would that would take up more time but it worked because we found things that most people that went over there weren't going to see now we're all pretty much familiar with the uss arizona memorial what are the other ones like are they just more museums are the uh, ships still there dry docked what are those like um, it's actually kind of sad. The Oklahoma, they have a really nice monument. If you ever, like, if you get the chance to go onto Ford Island to go see the Missouri or the Pacific Air Museum or anything, they do offer tours where you ha- where you can get on base and you can tour certain areas. On your way, like, if you're going to go to the Missouri, there's a monument to the Oklahoma that has all all these giant white sticks of forever anyone who died on the Oklahoma. Cause I think they tried to refit her, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it worked out. Cause they actually had one ship that they were towing back to California and she sank again. Oh. Like that may have been her, but the Utah is just sitting right next to the shore, just rusting. It's, I mean, there's a little plaque there, but it's, it's kind of sad for, cause most people don't know about that. And a lot of people 
died because of her because she she was the one I believe that rolled over. And so she's just, they tugged her out of the way and she's just kind of rusting away near the shore with this little plaque to the fallen of the Utah. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of like little information plaques. Like there'll be a stick and a sign that explains what happened here because there was one, one ship. I do not remember her name. She was, she was a little ship like the Vestal. The Vestal was the ship that was next to the Arizona. She was trying, she was trying to leave. She was trying to get out of Pearl because the um, the Japanese were trying to scuttle her right in the mouth because if you ever look at Pearl Harbor itself, it's a nice wide big harbor, but it has a tiny little mouth to get out to the ocean. So they're trying to scuttle this vessel in the middle of the mouth of Pearl so that way they, everyone would be stuck. They'd have to figure out how to move the ship out of the way before they could get anybody out there. Well, not only could so, no one get out, but it would prevent any other vessels who were out at sea from coming in to provide Exactly, all our carriers that were gone. So she ended up running her aground. So there's a little a little sign where they ran her aground. I think they were able to refloat that vessel. So that's one thing that about Hawaii is because they revere history so much as you can you find all these little things just everywhere because the battle took place over the whole island. You just can drive along and find, oh, something happened here. Now, obviously, as we stated at the beginning of the interview, the Arizona gets roughly 1.8 million visitors a year. I'm going to assume that you guys had discovered that some of these other locations probably didn't get half the foot traffic. Where a lot of those places, oh, obviously the fraction, ones you guys, yeah. obviously the ones you guys had private access to, one thing, but these other vessels, they're probably just a handful of people there, huh? Yeah, the ones that you are on the military bases, if you are stationed there, generally you can take a staff ride when you're st- when you're stationed there, so that way you can learn the history of the mm-hmm. station you're at. But some of the other ones, even that were open to the public, a lot of people never even heard of the Oklahoma or the Utah. So they're like, well, I'm not going to go check that out because I don't know what it is. I'm here to see I'm here to see the big battleship. So yeah. why do I want to go check out this memorial? Yeah, and, that, and that in itself is kind of sad, too, especially once you go out there. And like you said, you see, what was it, the Oklahoma that's just sitting out there by its lonesome with a merely a the U- Yeah, the Utah. Yeah, it's, she's, yeah the Utah. Just, she's just rusting away. just on, And there's just a little sign that... This was the Utah. I mean, when you go like to the Arizona Museum, they have a lot of good information there. If you go to the Missouri and you walk through the ship, they have a lot of good information there that if you're interested, you can go out and find this stuff. But for the general population, you have to really look for it if you want to find it. Now, I I know that the volcano and the lava is still um, menacing the area. But um, obviously, since I haven't been there, I'm not familiar with where all these historical sites are. Do you know if any of those sites have been affected by the lava flow? Nope. The lava flow is on the big island. The okay. island that there where Honolulu is, where everybody thinks of, is Oahu. That's, so that's where we went. There's two different islands. Yeah, I'm ignorant. But because the, the uh... state, yeah, the state is a chain of islands. So what else you got coming up in the near future? In the near future, let me think. We just did, well, D-Day was this weekend. At Zephyr Hills, I, so, I missed that one. Yes. Yeah, I missed that one as well because I'm dog and horse watching. Well, to be fair to me, I didn't learn about that one until uh, two days ago, so I didn't have enough time to prepare, and I have some some. Yeah, that's a bit of a drive weekend. for you, too. Yep. Now, I know you're on the West Coast with me, but uh, later yes. on in this episode, uh, Mike Santana is going to be joining us to talk about the Honor Flight and actually the Honor Flight fundraising show that's going to take place on June 23rd. 
over a little bit north of Miami, but that's probably a bit of a drive for you as well, correct? Yeah, that's about a four-ish hour drive, depending on traffic, going down 75 and across. <laughs> We're kind of running into the summer hot season for us down here in Florida. A lot of our, our brethren and uh, sisters up north, they have a few a few uh, reenactments in the wintertime, but they're just not getting yeah. up for their busy season. Yeah, and then there's Kaneo or Kaneot. I was going to say Kaneo because I'm still stuck on Hawaii. There's Kaneot for the D Day up in Ohio. Yep, and for uh, us Marine Corps and South Pacific reenactors, we're all gearing up for the 75th anniversary of the Tarawa landings of yeah, Alabama. Yeah, that's exciting for you guys. Yeah, we're we're trying to make it a big deal and trying to do it right so that the uh, the organizers have us back again. Because That'd be good. There's really no large-scale um, Pacific living history event of that magnitude that I know of. Um, maybe I, I know there's one they put on over in Texas. The guys in the Marine and the Navy are highly underrepresented in this hobby. They really are. And so it's nice to uh, try to build that into something. Yeah. And, and their numbers are starting to turn out. And I think we got two LSTs coming down. Or two Amtraks. We're trying to get one or two oh, more. Oh, awesome. We had to do some fundraising to uh, pay for the yeah, a lot of transportation costs. Because yeah. I believe two of them are actually permanently located up in Ohio as part of the Conneaut event. And so I believe we we at least got two of them to come down. Oh, that'll be great. That'll be that'll add so much to your, your, your reenactment living history. Oh, absolutely. I mean, could you imagine the D-Day event if they didn't have the landing barges and... And the guys just oh walked down goodness, the beach, yeah. got their feet wet, and turned around and walked back up. It wouldn't yeah. have the same impact, and I don't think yeah, the, exactly. um, I don't think it would go over well with the public. Take the wind right out of your sails if you go going to go see this reenactment of this battle, and you're oh okay, well all right then. So any uh, big horse events coming up for you soon? Uh, I'm trying to think. We don't really work the horses too much in the summer because it's Florida and yeah, it's, it's hot, hot and humid. And they and they sweat just as much as we do, but um, I'm trying to think of have any. I don't really have any conquistador or really World War II stuff with the horses. I like to bring them up to like if I ever go up to Conneaut to do something there. Since I do French Resistance, it would make sense that I would have a horse to be able to move around. I don't think I've the French seen, countryside. I don't think I've seen any photos of them. I mean, obviously Kentucky and Ohio have plenty of horses, but I've yet mm-hmm. to see any any shots from that event i mean i don't know anybody anywhere in the country that does um any type of mounted world war ii well you wouldn't even have to do mounted you could do french farmer with a wagon and your you know as an that would be awesome loaded up with rocking chairs and your and and just do do evacuations just trotting down the road with your your poor family that would look really good obviously you'd have to find a a old school wagon yeah well, a lot of people, even, well, especially up there, build wagons. So you can sure. just tell them this is what I want. Yeah, I mean, you're one state from Pennsylvania, which is Amish country. They'll happily exactly. build you a, a cart. <laughs> can you build me a 1940s cart? Sure. Sure. That'll be uh, 5000 American cash on the barrelhead. Yeah. Yeah, if you're lucky, no, wagons not, are expensive. Yeah, when I was work, when I, I actually used to live in Columbus, Ohio, and, and right after high school I worked at uh, Wendy's. And mm-hmm. our Wendy's was on 71, which is the same 75 that runs down here. It's just when you leave. Okay. When you cross the Ohio River, it turns from 75 into 71. But it was okay. on exit 100, which is a suburb of Columbus. 
and that's also where it intersected with 270 east and west, which circled the city, but it mm-hmm. would break off to Wheeling and Pennsylvania. And so there would be a lot of um, tourists coming through there, and we would get a lot of Amish and Mennonites coming through there. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, they'd all just come through in a van, and it was great. Oh, my goodness. You want to talk about great complexion, man. You see uh, some Amish and Mennonite women come through because they, they try to keep their face covered from the sun, and obviously they're not yep. caked out with makeup and all that. And they eat good food. They, yeah, I mean, some of the most beautiful people you'll ever see just because they're constantly working. They're out in the field. Yeah. Uh, you'll very rarely see a young, overweight Amish person or Mennonite. And, oh, no. There's, yeah. And, if you're if you're truly Amish to run a farm, it takes a lot of energy. You're busy all day. And, as long as there's daylight, you're busy. Yep. Make hay while the sun shines. Well, actually, I had a science teacher in high school who was a Mennonite. Really? The only difference between a Mennonite and an Amish is Mennonites believe in using technology. Yeah, we actually have a large Mennonite population near me. Down in Sarasota, there's loads of... Uh, Mennonite communities. Awesome. If you're into the southern style or the even um, northeastern style home, home furnishings, you want to get some beautiful wood furniture. Yeah, they you have go. a lot of a lot of businesses down here for furniture and restaurants <laughs> that the fudge. Mennonites run. You want to yes, talk about some good fudge. fudge? Yes. Now I'm getting homesick for Ohio. <laughs> well, you got to make a trip up there, do Conneaut. Um, yeah, well, see, here's the problem um, with my, well, if I count the podcast, I have three jobs, but this is something I do as voluntarily, you know, um, this is strictly a passion, but with my, my other two jobs, it's so hard to get time off of work. I understand it, it, with my, me working and taking care of the animals, I feel you. Well, especially working in radio, because radio, even though it's, you know, it's still considered the entertainment industry, and, and as the old phrase goes, the show must go yep, on. Exactly. And so there's only certain times of the year we can take days off of work. Yeah. And to make that event, I would have to drive up there because there is no... Use all your gear? Well, not only that, but there is no um, large airports close by. I think the closest one you'd either have to fly into Pennsylvania, because I looked into it. Oh, my goodness. There's a small airport up there. I looked into it last year. It would have cost me $900 round trip for plane ticket. Then I would have had to rent a car plus gas, drive over there, and then camp out for the weekend, drive the car back, and, and you know, I yeah, probably... Yeah, plus your food and the fuel, and... I could probably find someone to take my rifle up there, but I don't want to have to deal... But So I just got to work on the logistics, and uh, yeah. this year I'm going to work on um, the Alabama event just because I only have to take maybe one or two days off to make that drive. Yeah, that's then, a lot closer. And plus for the D-Day event, because Marine Corps is my primary impression, so I already have all the gear. Okay. I yeah. still have some equipment I got to buy for the um, for my D-Day landing. That's why I like doing civilian, because I can make a French citizen or a Belgian citizen or a German citizen. I, it's all very, very similar. No, you're lying. The reason you want to do civilians because you want to shoot weapons. Yeah, pretty much. I know you. Well, Sam, thanks so much for your time. I'll let you get back to your barrel racing and uh, right, tending you. to your horses. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Mike Santana. Mechanical engineer Richard James invented this product by accident in 1943 while working to devise springs that could keep sensitive ship equipment steady at sea. After accidentally knocking some samples off the shelf, he watched in amazement as they gracefully walked down instead of falling. Along with his wife Betty, James developed a plan to turn this invention into the next big novelty toy. 
Betty combed the dictionary looking for an appropriate name while James designed a machine to coil 80 feet of wire into a 2-inch spiral. The couple then borrowed $500 to manufacture the first version of their new toy. Initial sales proved sluggish, but soared after Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia allowed a demonstration for Christmas in 1945. The first 400 slinkies sold within minutes. An advertisement with a memorable jingle familiarized the national customer base. What walks downstairs alone or in pairs and makes the slinky sound. A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing, everyone knows it's a slinky. Slinkies glided effortlessly downstairs on television. But alas, most household steps provided too tall and too wide for long descents. Still, at the end of the 20th century, and 250 million slinkies later, people continue to buy them today. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>